If you will, turn back in your Bibles, or whatever form of God's word you have, to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. We'll be there briefly. We are picking up from our reflections last week, the subtitle being, You Have Need of Patience. You have need of endurance. You have need of being disciplined and uh, persuaded that God is control, in control. We sang that last hymn, and uh, sometimes the melody of a hymn can evade you in terms of the lyrics and theology behind it, but God leads his dear ones alone. We believe that, don't we? Problem is, every now and then, as is the case with our text, and I'm hoping to elucidate that a bit more today, we are more frequently inclined to think we know the way ourselves and don't mind detaching ourselves, extricating ourselves, taking our hands out of God's hand and leading our own selves. And that is something we have to watch out for. It's a temptation every day of your life. Uh, And the uh, Hebrew people are going to teach us some lessons on that continually. I am picking up Uh, With the challenge that Moses had, and as we look at that a little more deeply and then move into God's response to him today, I want you to think of three things. These are basic hermeneutical tools that will keep you from misabusing God's word. God's word is not about you. It's not about me. It's to us, but it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about a nation. It's not about an ethnic group. It's about Christ. And when you fail to get that, you will always misinterpret the scriptures. So there are three fundamental things you want to do every time you're sitting under the word of God. You want to understand what it is teaching historically. You want to understand what it is telling you and me to do by way of application. And thirdly, you want to know to whom it is pointing by way of redemptive prophecy. You really want to have the mindset of the Ethiopian eunuch who didn't mind Philip getting up in his escalade as he was making his way back to Ethiopia. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I except someone teach me? That's called humility. And the Ethiopian asked Philip this question of whom is the prophet speaking? Is he speaking of himself? Or is he speaking of another? You and I should always know that from generation or rather from Genesis to Revelation, God through the prophets is speaking to another. He's speaking to that other of whom the scripture said should come as Yahweh's visible representation. His name is Jesus the Christ. And Moses will speak to us today, not only of the dilemma of human beings by fallen nature, but he will speak to us today of the great reality of which he represented, pointing to the ultimate Moses, that is Jesus the Christ. So let's work with the tension of the historical narrative and its application to us. Historically, it is teaching us, historically, it is teaching us how hard it is for God's people to hold on to God's hand and let him lead them through the wilderness a way they have never been before. This is what the text is plainly teaching us. And we'll bump up against this in a very radical way in two chapters 
when they're going to have to hang out in the wilderness for another 38 years. And they didn't have to. They could have easily entered into their promise if they had simply held God's hand. A lot of times we're going to wander in circles in the wilderness where there is no direction until we say, Lord, direct my steps. Lead me in the path of righteousness for your namesake. I'm going to admonish you that way because, again, the beauty of the hymn is that we'll get there. But the reality is that sheep are not only dumb, but they're rebellious. And often the shepherd has to go catch up with his wandering wayward sheep because they love getting lost. I think sometimes some sheep like to get lost so that Jesus can save them over and over and over again. This is what I would call a dysfunctional relationship with the Lord Jesus. Ah, You can test him if you want to, but he'll leave you out in that wilderness long enough for you to get cold and scared. And he'll let all of the predators run up on you and nibble at your feet and hands just to let you know you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But here in our text, I want us to quickly dive into what we should always do. As the New Testament writer said, those things that were written aforetime, Romans 14, 5, were written for our learning that we through patience and consolation of the scriptures might have hope. So every time you come to church, you should learn something. God speak to me. It is also written in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is where we're going to go in the last portion of our text. These things were written to the intent that you and I should not engage in the same evil things that they did. So your Bible is written for you to learn and your Bible is written for you to avoid doing what they did. And that's what we're dealing with now today. We're dealing with something for which you and I can be very empathetic. We're dealing with a man who has just discovered that he doesn't not only have the natural personal qualities to lead 1.3 million people from Egypt to the promised land. He doesn't have that. What a great discovery when you and I come to discover that we're not all that. He doesn't have the ability in himself. He doesn't have the qualities in himself. He doesn't have the capacity within himself. And his uncle, his father-in-law, Jethro, let him know that back in Genesis 18. Did he not, son, look, you can't do this long. I know it makes you feel good. The problem is, and I'm going to make application as we go because you know that's what I do. The problem is, is that Israel wanted to create a hierarchy and, and have what we would have as a kind of human leader, human savior like Pharaoh. When all God was intending to do was lead them as their king and use Moses as his representative. Does that make some sense? But what they really wanted was a God that they could see, feel, touch and handle to lead them where they wanted to go. And I'm here to tell you that's much of Christianity today. That's much much of Western Christianity today. They want a material God to take them where they want to go rather than going where God is calling them to go. Now, whenever people set you up like that, and you and I have just a small measure of ego willing to allow people to platform us. Don't think you don't. You do. You will let people platform you for five minutes. Some of you for longer than that. You feel like you're here for that reason, that you need to shine. You need to be elevated. You need to be lifted up. And all of us are tempted that way. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd snatch Jesus off the throne and sit on it ourselves. 
This is called the temptation of sin. This is what our first parents did. And I'm here to tell you that you want to you want to empathize and understand the struggle of Moses. You want to understand it. You want to understand it because Moses's struggle is your struggle. See, the same people that will lift you up and make you feel like you're all that will be the very people that will let you down. And the next thing you know, you're mad at them. But you really should be mad at yourself because you let them lift you up and make you something that you're not. Am I making some sense? All right, so let's go in on and work with this because I love me some Moses. The Bible tells me he's the meekest man in all the earth beside Jesus. Now, what makes him meek is that once he gets into trouble, he doesn't do like most of us do. Put on fig leaves and blame somebody else. That's what my nation is doing right now. Telling us to blame somebody else for our problems. Here, I must let you know, anytime you sit around simply blaming someone else for your problems, you'll never get out of the wilderness. What Moses teaches me is that he had come to discover that he was inadvertently bearing way too much weight. Now, God had put it on him on purpose. As I told you guys before, whenever you're in a position of mediation, when you're in a position of interceding or intervening, and that's what it means to be a parent. That is what it means to be a superior. That is what it means to be in a position where people are depending upon you. When they're depending upon you, you bear the weight of those people's responsibility on your shoulders. So I'm talking to moms. I'm talking to dads. I'm talking to people that are in positions of authority right now. You have a sense that you are responsible for the environment of the domain that you have been obligated to. Does that make some sense? However, what you can do is make the mistake that Moses is making and forget that God is actually the one that holds you up. And Moses came to understand that only after 14 months in the wilderness. Now, brother Moses is a human being just like you and me. And when we first meet Moses, we meet a brother that was slated to be second in command to Pharaoh. So he had a lot of ego going on at that time, but God had allowed the grace of his identity to emerge and he came to realize he was more of a Hebrew than he was an Egyptian. That's what it means to be saved. When you're saved, you come to realize that you're more of a spiritual person than you are a carnal person. Did that make some sense? Now we still got a ton of Egyptian in us. I see it all over your body. So a bunch of my saints are running around with Egyptian tattoos all over the place. I love you. I get it. I really do. You're still struggling with your Egyptology. I get it. But you're called to actually walk in a higher new man capacity, which cannot be seen with the naked eye. That new man must be comprehended by your character, by your calling and by your relationship with God, not by tattoos on your body. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so very, now we, 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 we get you. You, 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 somebody lied to you about what you do with your body and you, you turned into a human totem pole. I get that. That's what Egyptians do. That's what we do. Okay. And so you still saved by grace. I, we get it. And you're going to have to explain them tattoos. And I'm, it's okay if you put some of the Christian ones on because you got Christians doing that hybrid stuff right now as well. Um, but God had told Israel, don't you play around with those things because I want people to know you for who you are in me. So Moses is struggling because Moses is discovering that the people that he is leading doesn't know God. And on this day, Moses was provoked to evil. Point number one. 
They provoked Moses to evil. Now, you have never been provoked to evil. You don't know nothing about being mad at nobody for no reason. You don't even understand what all this is about with Moses. Moses, you're supposed to be more graced than that. But y'all have to remember, Moses killed a brother. (laughs) He had to do 40 years in organic prison for anger. And uh, here he is right back at square one. Have you ever been that way? Have you ever been uh, in a lengthy journey with God, really enjoying your newness of life, that spiritual dynamic, and then come to discover you still got quite a bit of that old fella that you had to really overcome still lingering in the chambers. He now, that old fella wants to now serve God. Y'all get that in a moment. That old fella wants to serve God now. He wants to serve God, and the text tells us in Numbers chapter 11, verse 10, Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. We recognize that, don't we? God cannot countenance evil. God does not rejoice in iniquity. God will punish all forms of disobedience. But the last line said Moses also was what? And I began to work with you on how to properly understand that last week. The English translators did not do justice to the meaning of that Hebrew term. That Hebrew term literally means to do evil. To do evil. I share with you in Genesis 6 verse 5 concerning the children of men that God looked upon the sons of men on the earth and saw that the imagination of their hearts were only evil continually. Do you guys see the language? Only evil continually. And God was doing an x-ray of the totality of the society in Noah's day where they were given over to all kinds of base evil. Now God said this would happen when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and what? So now we know evil, don't we? And Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 15, out of the heart proceeds all manner of what? Evil, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, idolatries, blasphemies, anger, and all of that proceeds from our heart. You and I are just like Moses, are we not? Only on this day, Moses let this evil prevail. He let it prevail. And what I appreciate about Moses is, is that he allowed it to prevail, but he did something that most of us don't do. What Moses did was the noble act of self-regulation, the noble act of self-discipline, the noble act of self-reflection. A lot of times when you and I emote, we want to assert that our emotion our emoting, our expressing outwardly. Emotion means to move outwardly. We want to assert that why I am moving this way is because of somebody else. We love to do that. But the reality is, is most times, please hear me. Most times people can do wrong. That's their fault. They need to be dealt with that. But you're responsible for how you deal with it. Did y'all hear what I stated? People can be evil, they can be wicked, they can be vile, they can be manipulative. And you and I have to ask, why are we hanging around all those snakes? Because that's what snakes do. But when they bite you, you're ready to bite back. That means you're a snake just like them. And what I'm getting at is that we need to work through something that I don't think Americans do well at all. This is why we're buying into this foolish woke doctrine and falling apart because we think we can solve our problems by blaming somebody else 400 years ago for our present predicament. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Right, so here's what I want you to capture. Here's what I want, to ca- want you to capture. If you're going to help somebody, if you're going to help anybody, you got to get right with God yourself. If you're going to help, in- if, you, if you collectively with the plane are going down because the pilots have been compromised, you got to put your oxygen masks on first and make sure you got enough of the Holy Ghost in you. And then go around helping other people as you prepare to exit that crashing plane. And so what Moses has done was capture the reality that what was going on inside of him was about him, not about them. And notice how he uses this again. This terminology is a a very strong terminology uh, piece of language. Notice how Moses deal with this. This is over in verse 11. Look at verse 11 now. He says, and Moses said unto the Lord, wherefore have you afflicted your servant, referring to himself, and wherefore have I not found favor in your sight, referring to himself, that you should lay the burden of all this people upon me. So now here's what Moses is doing, and I shared this with you in our last outline. Moses has allowed the evil and the wickedness and the complaining and the murmuring of the people to get to him. Now, you and I are, are human beings and we're very, um, we're very porous. You and I can't bear things long without it pouring into our character. And so over time, Moses let it seep into his mind and seep into his heart. And now he's doing something that's going to help you and I understand the principle of application around the nature of the gospel. Because Moses is a mediator. He's like a priest. You know, he's been running up to God and talking to God on the behalf of the people. He's been running down from God and talking to the people on the behalf of God. He's both a priest and a prophet, which all of us are called to be. Didn't I tell you that? Your role as a child of God is both prophetic and what? It's both priestly and what? Sometimes you're speaking for God to men and other times you're speaking to God for men. And Moses now is rustling because you know what he has done? He has moved to the side of actually speaking for God as a prophet against his own people. Did that make some sense? Now he's ready to side with God in the destruction of his own people. This here is something that Moses caught and Moses recognizes that he needs to avoid complicity in the impulse to harm others in the name of righteousness. He needs to avoid the impulse of complicity to harm others in the name of righteousness. For those of you who know the gospel, I'm getting ready to help you. The gospel is very clear. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's only one human being on the planet that ever passed the test and he's back in glory now. And his righteousness, you and I need. But every time you and I exercise our own righteousness, we're going to get in trouble. Because our own righteousness never is on the side of God against us. It's always on the side of God for us. So that now we want to implement law to punish everybody else for what we think they did wrong. Am I making some sense? Now, Moses in your Bible is a great type of the law. Y'all know that. He's the lawgiver. Jesus said, you guys have Moses. That's what we call an adumbration to the law. That's a nomenclature that covers the law. John said it in John chapter 117. Moses brought you the what? 
but grace and truth comes through Jesus. So we teach that Moses is a type of the law. He is because God gave the law by legislation through him. God told Moses to execute that law. That law was designed to bring Israel into the promised land. You and I learned that there is a righteousness in the law, have we not? But something you are learning through the personality of Moses around the law, and that's this. Moses is starting now to he's starting now to demonstrate what it means to be a self-righteous judge based on law apart from grace. See, Romans chapter four, verse 15 teaches us that the role of the law works wrath. He teaches us this, that if you're going to be a lawyer, if you're going to be somebody that constantly wants to bring people under judgment, you're going to become a Pharisee. And when you're a Pharisee, you're going to be implementing the law only to punish people that you find guilty of that law and somehow excuse yourselves. Am I making some sense? This is why Jesus said, he that is without sin, let him do what? Cast the first stone. So here Moses is struggling with an internal dynamic to want. He wants the very people that God is leading him to lead them to the promised land to go to hell. Now, again, I know these kind of things don't rest in your bosom. You've never said in your heart to hell with him or to hell with not y'all. Y'all good Christian folk, good Christian folk. It never has emerged in your heart to do that. But but Moses is struggling with that. Listen, Brother Herman, though, Moses caught it. See, the average Christian wants to vent it. They, they, they want somebody to know how holy they are and their holy indignation against somebody else. This is dangerous in the home. This is dangerous in the home. This is dangerous in the home. Mom and daddy can teach their kids to be self-righteous by how they are with each other. See, once you start slinging the sword around, everybody can find a sword. The children can find swords against the parents. And the parents can find, now everybody in the house is jabbing each other, fighting. <laughs> now the house is supposed to be the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. But I walk by your house. You're a Christian. I'm walking by your house. And I'm seeing kids flying over with Superman punches at dad. And y'all supposed to be enjoying the grace of God. What you have done is lost your mind. And in the sinful impulses of self-righteousness, you're slaying one another. Am I making sense? Right. What I love about Moses is he catches it. He catches it. That's what it means to be meek. To be meek does not mean to be perfect. To be meek simply means to submit to God when you find yourself in trouble. That's what it means to be meek. And that's what's going on with my boy. He said, Lord, you have afflicted your servant. Have I not found favor in your heart, in your in your sight? This burden is too heavy for me. I agree with him. I agree with him. The impulse has driven Moses. See, we can extrapolate this out. If Moses was left to this kind of disposition, then Moses would be every leader who punishes everybody who doesn't conform to that leader's will. That's called totalitarianism. Moses would be every leader that would punish every person every time that person does not conform to their will. You can see Moses now in in all of the kings of Israel that sought to destroy all the prophets. 
You can see Moses, uh, Moses now, the anger of Moses in Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar told everybody, y'all need to bow down to this golden idol because this golden idol represents me. And if you bow, don't bow down, I'm going to kill you. You see how self-righteousness can stir up? We can see now Moses actually operating in King Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded because John simply told him you can't commit adultery. See, they wanted to censor John like folks want to censor us today because we're telling you the truth. We can see how that Moses would have been the rulers of Israel that killed Jesus. Can y'all see that? And I'm going to get ready to go there in a moment. And so what I'm getting at, if you extrapolate this out or just generalize this out, what we're seeing is the law killing everybody that they feel like in their own arbitrary judgment is threatening their position. Moses now is recognizing exactly what I told you. He saw himself clearly. Look at verse 15. This is Moses after he pleads with God. He says in verse 15, and if you deal thus with me, do what? If you deal thus with me, do what? I want you to capture that, child of God, because this is not simply a kind of an emotional appeal for God to simply take him away from his responsibility. Moses is now showing you and I the redemptive solution to our sinful nature when we want to harm people because we're angry. The redemptive solution is that the very thing in me that wants to kill somebody else needs to be killed. The redemptive solution is Romans 8, 13, where Paul taught us that if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you do by the spirit, mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Did y'all capture that? So now watch what the gospel is teaching. Watch what a redemptive solution to a sinful impulse, which calls you to be counterintuitive. Counterintuitive means turn that sword on yourself. The very sword you want to use to wipe somebody else out, turn it on yourself. Now, you can't do it if you don't know the grace of God. Because see, the grace of God lets you off the hook when it comes to your sinful tendencies, because there's a place to put your sin when you sin against God so that he doesn't have to kill you. Am I making some sense? So what Paul is teaching us is the doctrine of mortification. If you through the spirit do mortify, that means put to death the deeds of the body. You shall what? This is exactly what Moses is doing, is he not? I told you that Moses here is a type of the law. And the law covenant makes it very clear. The law works wrath. I showed you that Romans chapter four, verse 15. Where, wherever there's a righteous standard, here's what you can be sure of. Somebody going to break that standard. Now, what the law tells you and me, if we don't keep God's law perfectly, we violated God's law. The only solution is death. The wages of sin is what? Right. Moses knows that now. He knows it internally as well as externally. And it's very important for you to catch that because the law works wrath. This is what makes religion so dangerous. That verse right there. Because a religion will turn into legalism over time when it asserts its own righteousness over people rather than comprehending the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the history of Judaism. This is the history of Catholicism. This is the history of all works religion. Many of you guys grew up in works religion, didn't you? You grew up in those systems where they told you, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, if you don't do this, God's going to curse you, send you to hell. 
Now, half of that is true. You need to know that. But the other half is this. There is a remedy for our sin when we comprehend the merits of Christ who becomes the substitute for sinners. That's the message of the gospel. And here's what I want you to capture. Moses is now negotiating that. What Moses is negotiating when he says, kill me, is he's echoing a foreshadowing of the one who came to be the substitute for sinners. Yeah, I love this. Capture a child of God. Every believer knows that he must die. Is that true? See, Paul said it like this very much so. I die daily. He also said in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, he says, he says concerning himself, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice what Paul is saying. I'm a dead man walking. And what is he affirming there? He's affirming that you and I have to die in Jesus and that the doctrine of mortification allows us to benefit from Christ's death in our behalf because we can go to that very cross daily and allow our sinful impulses to be once again nullified by the death of Christ on the cross. Am I making some sense, child of God? It's important for you to get this. This is a mystery. If you don't get it, you can never walk in the joy of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Moses being a type of the law, the writer to the book of Hebrews gives us this insight into the nature of the law. I'm going to start at Romans chapter eight, verse three, and show you something about this personification of Moses in his struggle. This is New Testament theology explaining an Old Testament narrative in the person of Moses. Moses gave us the Old Testament. Jesus gives us the what? New. Moses is a foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus is the new Moses, is he not? And so Moses can teach us things in terms of parallels and in terms of contrast. And what we learn in the Hebrew is that the um, this is going to be Romans 8, 3, please. What we learn by the writer to the Hebrew, which some people think it was the Apostle Paul, is what we call the weakness and fallibility of the old covenant. And this is what Moses is showing us, how the old covenant, which God had just given to Moses a few chapters back, right? The 10 covenant commandments and the whole legislation of the law was given to Moses to give to the people to lead them where? To the promised land. But you and I know the historical narrative tells us Moses was never able to bring them in. So the law can show you what's right, but the law can't make you right. The law can condemn you, but it can't justify you. The law can show you the standard of obedience, but it can't conform you to that obedience that you need. Am I making sense? So the law can be a mirror for you. And that's what a lot of people love to do. Put up the mirror on you. But you just tell them, turn that mirror around first because you got to look at yourself in the mirror first before you turn it on other people. Am I making some sense? So Moses here, when he says, Lord, why are you showing me my affliction? Why are you showing me my weakness? And verse 15 says, why are you showing me my wretchedness? Because Moses as a type of the law is demonstrating that the law cannot do for one person, let alone 1.5 million people, what only the grace of God could do. Here's what you need to know. When Israel goes into the promised land, it won't be by Moses. 
when sinners enter into the grace of God, which is in Christ, it won't be by the works of the law. If sinners enter into the joy of freedom and liberty and blessed righteousness, it won't be the righteousness of works by men. It'll be the righteousness of works by Christ. Now listen to the covenant explanation, which you need to have, because you as a child of God need to discern when people are coming to you with Moses and not Jesus. And church folk and religious folk love to do that. They'll set up their own systems of self-righteousness and plop them on you to impress you. And if you are ignorant of the sufficiency and the beauty and the fullness and the totality and the perfections of Christ, you will buy works religion and it will turn you into a monster too. Did that make some sense? It's very important to get it. Here's what the Hebrew writer says, for what the law could not what? For what the law could not do. What could it not do? It couldn't make you righteous. What couldn't the law do? It couldn't conform you to Christ. What couldn't the law do? It couldn't take away your sin. The law can't take away your sin. The law itself can't give you righteousness. The law can't change your heart. All it can do is inform you. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And this is the thing. I'm going to drill this down for a minute to help some of you religious folk, because it's really important for you to learn whether or not you're a child of grace or a child of false works religion. It's important for you to know because there is a power in the law And a glory in the law like there's a glory in the gospel. We're getting ready to look at that in 2 Corinthians 3. You and I want to know whether or not we're wielding the sword of works righteousness, self-righteousness, me righteousness, rather than God's righteousness. You can do that through Gnosticism. What do I mean by that? You can tie people into knots based upon your intellectualism, how much you know. But I must tell you how much you know can't save you nor them. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And so some people get get tied up into what they know. What Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is we all have knowledge. Knowledge does what? It pops up. But love edifies. And so there are some people whose legalism is rooted in how much they know intellectualism. Others are rooted in asceticism. That is, they can appear to be better than you because they don't smoke, drink and cuss. I don't smoke. Okay, I don't drink. Okay, I don't cuss. Okay, what do you do? So now you're telling me what you don't do. Tell me what you do do. What about the porn? What about the lust in your heart? Right. What about the subtle compromises that no one sees but God? See, all you're doing is lying to me, but I already know you're a liar because all men are liars. There's none righteous. No, not one. Right. So when you when you pretend you are better than somebody else, you are simply one rotten worm, a little bit better looking than another rotten worm. Both of you are rotten by nature. Am I making some sense? And so what Moses is doing is dealing with, he's mitigating an inclination to make a horrible, horrible, horrible mess out of his calling. So God, often people will start off well. This happens with religious folk in the church all the time. They'll start off well. And the next thing you know, they've been hijacked by some temptation and now they're serving the devil. This is why you have so much prosperity gospel going on. And prosperity gospel is all about Gnostic and ascetic legalism. 
in your prosperity gospels, they hijack people and apprehend them because they have special revelations and special insights and special knowledge. It's a bunch of BS. It's a lot of bologna sandwich. Did that make some sense? But you didn't pick up on it because you want something from God to be gotten by somebody else working for it and then blessing you with it if you give them a hundred dollars. That's religion. That's religion. You don't want to think. You don't want to think. You want somebody to give you something. And churches are filled with that. If I just give the man of God something, God will give me something back. Well, no, you and I must pursue God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And see, that requires labor. A lazy person will not obtain the kingdom. And so what Moses is doing is keeping himself out of that cadre of, of, you know, pretenders and clowns who can be stumbling blocks to a lot of people for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the what? Isn't that what Moses is saying? My flesh is weak. The flesh of this 1.3 million people is weak. Lord, they're weak. I'm weak. We're all getting ready to go to hell. What is Moses doing? He's telling the truth. Remember what, Paul, uh, what David said in Psalm 51? Out of the inward man is God calling for truth. He says it's the inner man that God is requiring. He desires truth from the inward man. And when you and I confess what we are by nature, we are on the pathway to liberation. That's what David knew. David exercised self-righteousness too. And God tore his butt up for it, did he not? David came to understand sacrifices and offerings you would not. A broken and a contrite heart you desire, oh God. And here I'm telling you, child of God, you can't break your own heart. You cannot break your own heart. Men live to be 700 years old with hard hearts. They die in the hardness of their heart. You need God to break your heart. And when God breaks your heart, you know God did it. A human being can't break your heart. God has to break your heart. And when he breaks your heart, he takes you to the side. He doesn't humiliate you. God will never humiliate you. You and I will only humiliate ourselves. If we want to act a fool in public, then God will discipline us in public. But if you want to go in the house and go in the room with daddy, let daddy handle you. He knows how to humble you and not humiliate you. Right? A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. But notice what it says. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin did what? Condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is acknowledging the weakness of the law. The fallibility of the law, particularly as a covenant. The Hebrew writer puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 8. Notice what it says in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13. He's also treating the same thing. He says, for if that first covenant, that's the old covenant, isn't it? Because we got two covenants, old covenant and new covenant, right? Please listen to the language. For if that first covenant had been what? Without fault, blameless, having all the capacity and capability of its promises. So the law tells you if you obey the law, you shall live. Isn't that what it says? 
The law promises is that you follow God and submit to God. You'll enter into the blessings and enjoy the fullness and benefits of the kingdom. The Bible says if we obey the Lord, he will bless us. The problem is not with what the law demands. The problem is what the law cannot do in those demands when we break it. What good is a law given to you to do that you and I can't keep? And then the law has to turn around and kill you for it. Am I making some sense? And this is why the, uh, Paul said in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, that the law was designed to drive us to another alternative. Don't go anywhere. Look at what it says. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the what? This is what we love as New Testament believers. We are so persuaded that Jesus had to come because the whole world has become guilty before God and every mouth has been shut by the law of God. But Jesus came to remedy the problem that the law placed on us. Am I making some sense? Because the law has condemned all of us. I've already shared with you what the law said. Do you remember it? There's none righteous, no, not one. That's a huge problem. So, Lord, what are we going to do? Here, here we are, your people, we want you, we need you, but we're under the condemnation of the law. We need someone who can come along and bear the burden of the demands of the law and also bear the burdens of our violence against God's law. Am I making some sense? That's what the Hebrew writer is doing. Look at verse eight. We're going to walk this through. Hebrews 8, verse 8, for finding fault with them, that is Israel. Here's what God says. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant. There's the word new because Moses is the old and Jesus is the new. And Jesus brought in the new covenant and it was made perfect by his blood and righteousness. He was a spotless lamb of God that shed his uh, blood for our sins. And now you and I have access to a new and living way by the blood of Christ. Am I making some sense? So the Hebrew writer is letting you and I know, be careful not to be trapped by folks that want to put you back under that old system. Listen to it again. He says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse nine. Verse nine, Hebrews eight, nine, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them and led them out of the land of Egypt. Here we are. That covenant that Israel is under right now in our reading, that covenant is going to only kill Israel. It's going to constantly condemn everything that they do. Moses won't bring them in. Joshua will. But even when they get in the land because they're under that old covenant, they're going to continue to sin and rebel against God. Are they not? They're going to continue to heap judgment up against themselves. This is what Paul taught us in Colossians chapter two. The ordinances that were written against us filled up with our transgressions. That ordinance that was against us daily, you and I by nature sin against God. Do we not? In thought and in intent and in motive and in deed. If you're in Christ, all your sins have been nailed to the cross. If you're outside of Christ, you are constantly accruing to yourself. As Roman 2 puts it, you are heaping up wrath against the day of judgment and indignation against the righteousness of God. See, there's a day coming when everyone who has not bowed the knee to Christ will have to pay for their own sins. Am I making sense? It's a beautiful thing when you come to know the end of the law is Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful. This is why I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago about that veil over Moses's face. 
National Israel was such a group of sinners that they could not see the glory of God on Moses as something they had a right to. They had an aversion to it. And remember what they said, Moses, you talk to God, we'll obey God through you. They were lying then. So Moses is dealing with a problem in our text where we're learning something about his own weakness as a representation of the covenant. Verse 10, I want to walk this through. We got a little more to go. I know I'm teaching you theology, so you may have the heebie-jeebies because you're not being taught in your churches. Just take some penicillin and and antibiotics. You'll be okay. Because I'm teaching you what you and I are apart from Christ. And Moses is helping us. Listen to it in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I'll I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them where? What, What is he talking about? He's talking about what it means to be saved. He's talking about what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, 25. Take out the stony heart. I had one. Put in a heart of flesh. I got one. When a man or a woman is born again, God gives you a new nature. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. And then God shows up in your life and he starts writing the law on your heart. So you and I know internally what right is. Am I making some sense? And then the text tells us not only does he write it in our, go back to verse 10, please. Not only does he write it in our heart, uh, in our heart, he says he will be to them a what? And they shall be to me a what? That means God will be present with you. And what the Bible teaches us when we're born again, we have the third person in us that now shows us what's right and wrong. But more than show us, he leads us and guides us into obedience. Okay, this is so critically important for you and I to know. But it's not our works. It's the grace of God working through us. That's Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12, you've heard it before. This is such a very critical idea that I'm tying down right now. And this has to do with God working in you the will and to do of his good pleasure. Have you guys heard it before? Right? God is the one that works in you the will and to do of his good pleasure. All right. So go with me on as we go on and sub point B of our outline. I want to lock this down right quick. Not only did Moses sin in his heart, but Moses did what? He sought God for help. That is the point I want you to get. He deferred to Christ. He employed a redemptive solution to what began as a self-righteous stoning of the sinner. When he said in his heart he was experiencing evil, he wanted to see them killed. That is equivalent to stoning the sinner. You remember when that woman that was taken in adultery was brought to Jesus? The very Pharisees who boasted themselves to be Moses' disciples, didn't they? We be Moses' disciples. Now we know. So you want to stone everything that's not like you. And this woman taken in adultery, they they didn't know that they were fulfilling Moses because Moses is designed to run the sinner to Christ. And they thought on this Sunday school morning they was going to kill this woman when all they did was brought her to the man who would die in her behalf. Am I making some sense? That woman was scared to death. Now, she might have had a little bit more confidence if one of those brothers would have admitted they were the ones screwing around with her. That's why Master went and wrote on the ground because he was mocking the father, mimicking the father who had taken two stone tables out of the rock and written with his own finger the Ten Commandments. 
And when those wicked rulers who love pointing their finger at everybody else saw their names in the stone, one by one, they all said, you know, I think I'm, I think I'll go have some lunch. <laughs> she was not saved by the law. She was saved by grace. She was saved by the grace of God. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And this is what Moses is teaching us here. He says, kill me and kill me is an echo of the third person telling you and I that the second person must die for our sins. You and I have to die daily and we do it in the person of Jesus. When you are struggling with the iniquity of your heels, when you are troubled with the inclination to be self-righteous, join Moses in saying to God, what? Kill me. Kill me. Kill it, Lord. Kill it. Free me from this wretched man. Free me from this wretched man. That's what Moses says. Lord, I don't want to see my wretchedness. That's what he says in verse 15. And this is why Paul, who also knew the law, picked it up in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, right? I thank God, therefore, I, with the flesh serve the law of sin. It's in my members. But by the spirit of God, I serve the law of Christ in my heart. So I'm living with that, that tension. I'm living with that conflict. Are you? If you don't have this conflict, you're not saved. If you don't have this conflict, you're not saved. And to be successful in your forward progression and walk with God, you have to know how to negotiate the sustaining of your evil impulses by delivering them unto God through Christ and seeing them nailed to the cross. Because you're liberated only through the power of grace. And that's what Moses is teaching us. I love this. And then this is something very interesting that comes out of the Lord's response. Will you notice going back to our text? And this is what God said in verses 16 through 17. I want you to see this. And the Lord said unto Moses, gather unto me 70 men of the elders whom you know to be elders of the people and, and, and the officers over them and bring them to the tabernacle of the congregation that they may stand there with who? With you, Moses. Now, I want you to see this. this is going to be very important. This is why we tell you, you cannot understand the New Testament without the old. And you cannot understand the Old Testament completely unless you lead, allow it to lead you to the New Testament. Because here we have a foreshadowing of events that happened in the New Testament. Y'all know that, right? You know we are headed to Pentecost. You know we're headed to Pentecost. Do you not know that? Moses is the main leader. He points to who? Moses has elders under him. Jesus has apostles under him. There will be 120 in the upper room who will have the same anointing that Jesus did. Are y'all coming with me? Do you see what's happening here? We're seeing a foreshadowing of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on men and women who are called to represent God in the community. This is so important. Notice what it says. He says, they're going to stand there with you. And verse 17 is a recapitulation. Look at verse 17. And here's what Jesus says to Moses. Now, those of you who know that the voice of the father is always the son. Y'all know that. Jesus is talking to Moses. The father never moves. He's always on his throne. If God comes down, it's Jesus coming down. I told you Jesus is the visible Yahweh. He's the one always coming. He's the mediator between God and man, is he not? And here's what Jesus says to Moses. Y'all got this? He says, and when I come down, I will talk with thee there. 
Well, he already did that back in Numbers in uh, Exodus 34, verse five. Did he not? Jesus loves to come down and talk with us. Whenever you're in trouble, say, Lord Jesus, come down and talk with me. And he will do that by his spirit, because what he said in John chapter 14, verse 21 through 23, if any man love me, he will keep my commandments and I and my father will abide with him. We will take our seat in his heart, her heart and dwell with them and fellowship with them. God promises that the only way you and I know the father is because of the son. The only way we know the son is because of the Holy Ghost, the very spirit that Jesus is going to take off of Moses and put on 70 men. Let's watch how this works. It's very important because you're getting ready to see how God's going to foreshadow his care of a bunch of rebel sinners before he exercises a righteous judgment. Here it is. He says, and I will take of my spirit, which is upon you, and I will put it upon them. Don't we want what Jesus had? And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you do not what? Bear it alone. You see the New Testament now? Do you see how the apostles now who waited for Jesus to come? And this is what John chapter 20 around 21 says. And when Jesus showed up in the upper room, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Did he not? So the New Testament church is established upon the doctrine of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So what Moses is experiencing with these elders, Jesus promised to the disciples who became apostles, and the same thing that was on the disciples came on all the body of Christ in Acts chapter 2. That's what we're getting ready to deal with here. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them what? So now we're looking at the Old Testament corresponding with the new. Y'all got that? Go back to the text. We got work to do. Go back to the text. Look at what it says here. He says, I'll put of the spirit that you have upon them. Verse 18. Verse 18. And say thou to the people, sanctify yourselves tomorrow and you shall eat flesh for the Lord. For ye have wept into the ears of the Lord saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? For it is well with us. It was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you exactly what you want. So I want you to see a couple things under point number two before we go to the final point. So in point number two, the request that Moses is asking for, God, kill me. It was resolved and answered by God, not by killing Moses, but by giving Moses an outpouring of a spirit on leadership so that they could help Moses. Did y'all get that? Stay with me now. You're not dumb. Listen very carefully. The request to die was the solution to everybody breaking God's law in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Would you agree with that? Christ came to die for our sins. The result of Christ's death on the cross is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Whenever the Holy Ghost is poured out, it's because Christ has already died for our sins. The presence of the third person is because of the finished work of the second person. You don't get to talk the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost without Christ died for our sins. You don't get to enjoy being born again until someone died to pay the debt that allowed you to be born again. You don't get to enjoy regeneration, renewal of the spirit, sanctification, washing of your soul 
except Christ laid down his life for your sins on the cross in his body. He says, if I do not go to the father, he will not send the comforter. Am I making sense? What I'm teaching you is anytime the third person is working, it's because the second person has finished his work. Don't ever talk about the third person without giving honor to the second person. If you don't, you're not Christians. You're simply pagan mystics. This is what I despise about Christianity that loves to talk about the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. And don't give a word about the one who sent that Holy Ghost, because if he didn't send him, you wouldn't have him. And the goal of the Holy Ghost is not for you to talk about the Holy Ghost. The goal of the Holy Ghost is for you to talk adequately, sufficiently, efficaciously, redemptively, eloquently about the second person. And when he comes, he will not speak of himself. He will take the things of mine and show them unto you. He will glorify me. How do I know you have the Holy Ghost? Because you glorify Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the spirit of God. Did y'all hear what I just stated? You're just running off at the mouth. Some other spirit has gotten a hold of you. You're flying here and flying there. But you're not actually being guided by the second person because the second person sent the third person to glorify him. I know you're full of the spirit of God when you love Jesus. And when you know him enough to talk about him. If you're running off at the mouth with all of these other disciplines and sciences and informations and, and new age fangled ideas, I know you don't know the second person. If you don't have the capacity to demonstrate the exaltation and the fullness and beauty and splendor and perfections of the one that took on your nature and lived from you from the womb to the tomb. He died and was buried and rose again and ascended on high to sit at the father's right hand. If you don't know how to talk about him, you are not being taught by the Holy Ghost. Are y'all hearing me? Let me make this plain. The reason that the third person is with you, we call him the resident Lord. When Jesus died for your sins, he bought you lock, stock and barrel. Didn't I tell you that? Right. You and I have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we glorify God in our bodies. All right, I got a little bit to go before I turn the page. See, here it is. This is what bothers me about this generation I live in. This generation I live in does whatever it wants to do with its body. I got Christians who are so arrogant that way before they die, now they've heard us teach There's a way to glorify God in your life. There's a way to glorify God with your mouth. There's a way to glorify God in your walk. And there's a way to glorify God in your death. I've told them that. You're not breathing in and out if you're a child of God, except the Lord God upholds you and keep you. He paid for every breath you're breathing. He prayed for those synapses in that brain matter. He prayed for your intellect, your rationale. He prayed for your emotional makeup, your psychological well-being. He paid for your soul, did he not? You are obligated to take the totality of your being and honor God with your life. I'm here to tell you, you owe him everything. Stay with me, stay with me. And some of you rebellious Christians live exactly like you want to. Every day of your life, you're doing whatever you want to do. And you wonder why you are not prospering. 
It's just amazing to me to watch Christians waste their time every day. Immerse themselves in this world every day. And I'm not surprised when they discover that they're going to die. You, you, have you met people who, 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 who they've been told you're going to die, right? And, and then they get close to death and they live like they just never were going to die. And one of the ways I know this is because when people die, they're not ready to die. Like God didn't tell you you're going to die. You, you do know you're going to die. Right now, now, I let a few young people get away with this for about five minutes because young people don't ever think they're going to die. But when you're 60, 70, 80 years old and you act like you're not going to die, you're a fool. And then you leave all the mess for us to have to fix. Like most Christians will die without adequate insurance. They'll die and leave the bill to us and let us have to wrestle together. And often we have to bury you in an undignified way. Am I making some sense? Because see now, if you if you grew up poor, dirt poor, and all you know is poor people, poor people going to die you, uh, bury you the way they bury poor people. We might not even put you in a, in a, in a, in a pine box. Okay, I'm just letting you know that now. You might get put in a little bitty jar, okay? Because that's all we can afford. Now I'm going to tell you one more thing and I'm going to bother you because I'm a pastor. You're supposed to die for the glory of God. Yes, indeed. You know what that means? That means your body is supposed to speak to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That means when you die, you have let the world know you prepare to die because Christ died for you. He purchased you lock, stock, and barrel. That means when you die, you're going to be buried. You're not going to be incinerated. That means when you die, you're going to be buried and not incinerated because all believers know that one day there's going to be a resurrection of the body. That means when you die, you're going to be buried in a formal Christian burial so that your death can be the last message you preach to everybody that comes to honor your departure. That means when you die, you get to preach the gospel through a faithful preacher who will tell everybody that's living. That that man or that woman whose body is in that casket, they are not there. They are in glory with their Lord. Their body is about to go into the ground like a seed and wait for the day of resurrection. God loved us enough to let us know there's a day coming when we all will hear the voice of the Son of God. And the graves will be opened. And we shall rise up out of those graves, our bodies, and be united with our souls. And our Lord will be glorified in having raised us from the dead. See, so God means for you to preach your best sermon in your dead body. Because it points to the last enemy that God will subdue, and that is death. How subdued is death when your body is laying in the casket and the community of the faithful are rejoicing And that you are not here, but has risen and are seated at the right hand of God in glory. How beautiful. But see, I'm saying that I'm dealing with a generation of ignorant, rebellious Christians that all they want to do is just make sure they go to glory. That means they're not living for God's glory. That means they're living to go to glory. So they're not living down here in honor of God. And when they die, they won't honor God because you got to be prepared to honor God. Am I making some sense? Let me keep going then, because it's a tragic reality that the uh, secular system knows in this regard. It knows that human beings 
don't believe they're going to die and they don't prepare for it. It knows that. It knows that. And so in our text, what we are being taught here is something absolutely beautiful about the outpouring. Three sub points and I'll move on to my final point. A power conferred on the elders, a pattern of things to come. We just saw this and a promise accomplished in Christ. Is this true? It's a promise accomplished in Christ. I love this. This is how Luke puts this, because what we're dealing with here in our text is the outpouring of the spirit. Are we not? Here's what Luke said in Luke 3, 16 and 17. Get this, because Luke was the foreshadow of Jesus. And John, 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 the, John the Baptist said this in Luke, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I, he is coming. Who is that coming one? The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the what? Holy Ghost. And then he will baptize you with what? Those are two different dispensations. I'm getting ready to teach you something. The first baptism is what happened at Pentecost when Christ rose again from the dead, ascended on high and said, tarry ye here. Y'all got that? And he was indicating the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which all men and all women need to be saved. Y'all got that? So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit preceded the outpouring of what? Fire. Y'all got that? And that's because the fire that he would bring would be the fire of his righteous judgment against national Israel because of his rebellion against the gospel for 37 years of preaching. When Jesus rose again from the dead, the apostles witnessed to the Jewish people for 37 years, beginning in Acts chapter two and four, God hath made the same Jesus Lord and Christ. You who have crucified him, God has made him Lord and Christ. And many of them said, so what do we do? You remember what Peter said in Acts chapter two, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your house, and you will receive the gift of the what? Holy Spirit, right? That message was preached for 37 years and the nation of Israel rebelled against the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So they were met with what? Fire. Fire is the judgment that John said would come upon them. Listen to how John puts it. Look at verse 17. This is verse 17, just to help some of you, because we're going back and see the pattern in the Old Testament and we're done. Whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly do what? Purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. Stage one. That's the preaching of the gospel. In the preaching of the gospel, there's a harvest that always comes. You and I are like wheat that God brings into his harvest. Is that not true? So the preaching of the gospel took place for 37 years and many Jews came to Christ. You know it because you read the book of Acts, but not all of them. And the language of the New Testament is the vast majority of those Jewish people rejected Jesus unto their own condemnation. Am I making some sense? And in AD 37, AD 70, it was a hard, hard time for the Jews who perpetually uh, rejected and resisted the gospel. And let me give you the parallel. The Holy Ghost has been poured out into the world in AD 33 on Pentecost. The Holy Ghost is here. He doesn't need to continue coming down. We know that because people are saved. Am I making some sense? But there's another fire coming on the last day against everybody who continues to rebel against the gospel. Am I making some sense? That is the representation of God's character. Pull it up. This is uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse six and seven. 
Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is where Jesus came down the first time. You guys remember this. I want you to capture this. This is where Jesus came down the first time. The text says, and the Lord passed by Moses. That is the Lord Jesus. And he preached the Lord, the Lord God. You guys remember that? Now notice the qualities that come up first. Merciful and gracious and long suffering. Is that the way God is with us? He's merciful. The gospel is a gospel of mercy. He's not only merciful, he's gracious. The gospel is a gospel of grace, is it not? What you and I know is that we're saved by mercy and we're saved by grace. It's the mercy of God that saves us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy hath he saved us by the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he poured upon us abundantly. Notice mercy, grace, and what? Long suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. That is the saving side of God's character. That's the saving side. That's the good news preached. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be what? He that believeth not shall be what? Damned. Look at the next set of attributes. Verse seven, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Is that not the atoning work of Christ? But he will by no means do what? But he will by no means do what? visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Listen to me. God is holy. Let's go back to our text. I'm going to close now, show you something. God is holy. You guys remember when Moses said back before this portion of scripture, he said, Lord, if you don't go with me, you know, kill me. Remember that? And Moses, and God said to Moses, Moses, look, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy and I'll kill who I want to kill. I'll, I'll, I'll bring judgment on whom I will bring judgment. Y'all remember that? And I told you the way God works is a lot of times he won't bring his judgment for a long period of time. He'll give you time to repent. Well, that's what's going on here. I told you it's 14 months in now. These, these same knucklehead people that were back there in that day dancing around the golden calf, naked, having a, a frolicking party, and Moses knew that God was going to kill him. Only 3,000 died on that day. Y'all remember that? And, and, and God said, Moses, go ahead on and lead my people. I'll deal with these crazy people who actually blaspheme me in their disobedience. So get this, ladies and gentlemen. Just because God delays his judgment doesn't mean you forget. And, and, what, and what Solomon taught us, because Solomon knew a little bit about sin. Just a little bit. <laughs> Solomon said... When judgment is executed slowly, when the judgment comes slowly, it only hardens the heart of people who don't already have the resident fear of God in them. This is why preaching like I do, people don't like what I preach. Now, y'all hearing what I'm saying? Right, because their hearts are hardened against a God that has a right to tell you and I what to do and how to live. But God is merciful to let us breathe in and out every day particularly when we're living like hell. He's merciful. So when God brings judgments and plagues and reverses and sudden death, he was merciful up to that point where he says, okay, you don't get it. Time for you to go. Here it is. I want you to see it with me. I'm going to close. We're over in Numbers chapter 11, where God now is going to show Moses his difficult side. Point number three, they provoke God to what? 
That's Numbers 11, verses 18 through 20. Listen to what God says. And he said unto them, unto the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. You're going to eat flesh and you have wept in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord heard you saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you flesh and you shall eat. Y'all better get a hold of that. You shall eat flesh. I'm going to walk you through this because you need to sense it. So God told Moses, tell them, y'all getting ready to eat. You ask to eat. You're getting ready to eat. You're getting ready to have exactly what you want. I'm going to try not to be here long, but I'm here to be here long enough for you to get it. Okay. You ask to eat. And that's a symbol of us craving our own carnal desires. And then not only on top of that, you, you despise the manna. What is this manna? This coriander seed, this bland food. I told you that's a picture of false religion as it is in my day that has turned the gospel into entertainment and turned it into emotionalism and turned it into fleshly carnal gratification. You can go to all kinds of churches today that make you feel good and never preach Christ to you. Never preach Christ. Because Christ is the manna that God brought down from heaven to feed your soul. It's qualitatively different. It's qualitatively different. Spiritual food does not affirm your fleshly desires. Spiritual food strengthens your inner man so that you recover your right mind and recognize that you're far from God. Spiritual food helps you see rightly when you have been deceiving yourself. Spiritual food is an illuminating experience. It's a strengthening of the inner man so you can rise up and say, Lord, kill him. I'm making some sense, am I not? That's exactly right. This is why a whole lot of people are going to experience the darkest depths of hell because they play games with God. Y'all hear what I'm saying? This is terrible. Listen to it now. They provoke God to anger. So we read over in verse 19, you shall not eat one day nor two days nor five days. You're not going to even eat 10 days. You're not even eating 20 days. But even a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. And it will be loathsome unto you because that you have despised the Lord, which is among you. And you have wept before him saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? I hear a lot of Christians talking like that. They love this world. They absolutely love this world. And Moses said, the people among whom I am are... (laughs) 600,000, we got that number right again, right? Footmen, soldiers. And he said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to to satisfy them? See, Moses is tripping, isn't he? Because he's thinking God is telling him he got to do it. Now, Lord, how am I going to do this? We way out in the desert. We weigh, are we going to eat all of the flocks that we have to use for sacrifices? And I don't know where to get fish and quail. No, the Lord didn't tell Moses to do it. The Lord was going to do this. 
Now watch how this goes. This is absolutely remarkable. We'll see this over in verse 31. Are you there? Verse 31, I'm going to start here. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quail from the sea. Right, again, so if you understand the language carefully, this was not a natural wind. Your wind's currents were running all up and down the ocean side there, coming from Egypt, going down to the, uh, to the uh, Mount Sinai Peninsula. There was sea there. We saw that, that whole Mediterranean Sea area. Wind currents are running all the time in those areas. And the quail would run from one region of the world to the Egyptian side so that the Egyptians had quail. Uh, birds are always flying on the currents of the water. You guys know that. This wind captured a whole group of quail heading their way to Egypt and blew them over into the Sinai Peninsula. The, the language for the wind here is a torrent of storm that overcame the natural current flow of the winds and forced those birds off of their track. I know they were saying in their head, in their head Lord, where are you taking us? Where are we going? Where are we going? Okay, we just got to roll with the Lord. He's the Holy Ghost, and so we got to roll with him. And this is where they are now, and I want you to capture how this works. Now, notice what it says. He says, and there went forth a wind and brought quail from the sea and let them fall in the camp. The quail fell right where they were. Now, listen to this as it were a day's journey on one side. Now, you don't get that because a day's journey with 1.3 million people, this, they say, is something like a 10 to 11 mile length of distance from where they were. 11 miles of birds coming down. Now, the two major interpretations with this language that the birds were forced to come down by the wind current to fly among the people at about five feet off the ground. This is what the language is going to say. Watch this. And it was as a day's journey on this side, as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, as it were two cubits high. Now, a cubit is anywhere from uh, 18 inches to 20 inches, depending on which cubit you use. You multiply, that's about three feet off the ground. This is where I am. You guys see that? So the interpreters surmise two things. One, which is rational. The other one is a little bit, little bit uh, challenging. And that is the birds were flying among the Israelites. They were flying among the Israelites to the tune of 11 miles up the road. Because 1.3 million people, that's a long ways. And the, and the text tells us a day's journey is the length that they were flying round about the camp. Does that make sense? As it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. Now, the reason why I say that is because some theologians would argue that these birds didn't just fall on the ground and lay there dead in front of the Hebrew people. That would have been like roadkill. Okay, that would have been taboo. So these birds are flying. They're flying low. They're flying low enough for you to capture. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. And the people stood up all day. They stayed up all day. They stayed up all, <laughs> all night. And all the next day. What were they doing? Gathering quail. Gathering quail. Y'all got that? They're gathering quail. Y'all got that? They're, all these people are gathering quail. And the text is very clear. Listen to the language. And they gathered, and the least gathered 10 homers. Do your work. That's a ton of quail per person. 
okay? Multiple camels full per person. Now, what is God teaching us here? The insatiable nature of the lust of our flesh when an opportunity is given to fulfill it. The insatiable nature, the insatiable nature of the lust of our flesh when an opportunity is given. Now, remember, God has said it prophetically, did he not? He says, you're not going to eat one day. You're not going to eat two days. You're not going to eat five days. You're not going to eat 10 days. You're not going to eat 20 days. You're going to eat a whole month. Everybody's gathering enough quail to cover a month. Y'all got that? This is quite remarkable. Then look what verse 33 says. And while the flesh was between their teeth, while they were eating it, and we may presuppose that they had already cooked it. Do you understand that? Maybe some crazy people was eating raw quail. I don't know. But we may presuppose that they cooked it. But what we do not have to hypothesize about is that they just kept eating, gorging the food. Do you see it? They just kept eating. Now, God had given them over to the lust of their flesh. He didn't give them a break. He didn't give them a limit. He didn't give them a measure. They're just eating and eating and eating and eating Er, while they're chewing it, the wrath of God was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people. Now, this is logical to me with a what? A plague. Do you see it? Now, what is he talking about there? Think about what these people did. They brought this plague on themselves. These are people who have been disciplined to eat a pure diet of the manna and pure water out of the rock. Manna that was protected by God. Psalm 78 puts it in this language. God gave them angels food. Manna that was protected by God, pure, unadulterated, undefiled. No contaminants, no diseases, no toxins. You don't know what you're getting from these birds of Egypt and you're eating it, and you are consuming it, and it's going in your whole body, not one day, not two days, not five days, not 10 days, not two weeks, not three weeks, a whole month. If we even left this on the natural, a whole bunch of people are dying from overconsumption. Am I making some sense? I told you I wanted you to get it. Because the way Christians read their Bible you can't learn anything if you don't take God's word serious. God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give you over to the lust of your flesh. The intemperance and the ingratitude and the excess and the indulgence is what you and I describe as addictive behavior that drives men and women to levels of self-harm that they die with their joy in their mouth. This is the world I live in. This is, the, this is society I live in. I live in a world where men live for pleasure and not for God. And they will bless God if God gives them their pleasure. And frequently they die from the pleasure that they're blessing God 
that gave it to him. Y'all keeping up with me? Listen, as far as I'm concerned, just those three, four, five verses right there alone got me fasting for 90 days. I'm fasting for 90 days. I don't want no chicken. I don't want no quail. I don't want no pigeon. I don't want nothing that looked like a bird. I'm going vegetarian. I'm eating nothing but vegetables and water for the next 30 days. I want to get as far away as I can. And I'm being facetious, but y'all understand where I'm going because the lesson is clear. If you choose anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ represented in the gospel of his glory, in the bread that God provides for us, you are wide open to the plagues of Egypt. Did y'all get what I just stated? May God grant you and me to hunger for his righteousness and not our own. Amen and amen.